Hello and welcome to JudgeCast. This is a podcast about judging Magic the Gathering. Uh, we've been going for about 28 episodes as of this one. And today, I wanted to introduce ourselves, our hosts here, Sean Caranese from Berkeley, California, Level 2 DCI Judge. And Jose Boveda, still Level 1 from Sacramento, California. And we have a special and- guest with us. Special guest is all the way back. F- well, I'll cut that part out. Damn it. I suck at this. <laughs> all the way back from wait. No, damn it. Our special guest, you just heard there. Our special guest is Kevin Binswanger from Austin, Texas. Yay. I'm Kevin Binswanger from Austin, Texas, and I'm now a level three judge. So now he's actually like doubled our levels in judge cast just by being here that's right he has he's actually not only just a level three i mean just in level three is kind of a oxymoron already because (laughs) level threes do so much but he's also the regional coordinator for the southwest u.s um, and is responsible for being at war uh, with northern europe or we'll call it a judge challenge a race to 55 (laughs) total levels uh, you can call it that. I call it. I call it uh, Cowboys versus Vikings. There we go. And uh, how how are we doing on that one, Kevin? Uh, I think we're doing well. We had a uh, Grand Prix in Dallas, Texas. Certified a couple of judges. Then I advanced to level three. Then uh, another guy in Texas named Aaron advanced to level two. So assuming there aren't uh, major developments this weekend, I think we're doing pretty good. Good. Sweet. I also wanted to ask, um, do you get credit for importing Mitchell Waldbauer? Uh, yes. Actually, uh, I was talking to Andreas Jepsen, and he recently coaxed two judges to move into that area for work, I, I think. And I was good-naturedly complaining that the NCAA has rules about transfers and you don't get it full eligibility <laughs> for a year, and why don't we? <laughs> That's great. So I guess, Kevin, let's actually t- sort of take a step back from the agenda we've got here because it's not often that we have a guest, although you were on episode 26 just two episodes ago. Um, wanted to check in with you. Tell us about leveling up, what that did for you, and, and what that means for you now, what that process was like. I know there was a factor of taking a test and then the interview and – I guess it was the interview that you needed some more work on or how that they set sort of goals for you or something along those lines. Tell us more about the process, um, sort of how you got to where you are now and what you see going forward. Actually, my, my path was a little um, unique. So a couple of weeks ago, almost a month ago by this point, there was a senior level, a senior judge summit at Wizards of the Coast, and regional some of the regional coordinators and level four judges were invited. I got to go. We discussed some amazing stuff for the the program, some of which is uh, coming out now that we'll be discussing a little bit later. And so there were twelve of the finest judges in the program sitting there with um, the guys who run the program at Wizards of the Coast. And I got the full, you know, a full grilling and we talked about everything and what level three is and where we're going in the program. And at the end of it, they said, hey, you've got your head on screwed straight. We had a fantastic night of advancements. 
So did they did they take the hat and put it on you? Like were you Gryffindor or or? <laughs> it's sort of like that, only with a, a wine glass, and you get to choose white or red. Oh man, that's <laughs> I, I'm going for my level three. <laughs> All right, you have inspired Jose. That, that that's if we get nothing else from this episode other than inspiring Jose to the degree he sounds inspired. Fantastic. I'm inspired now, inebriated later. Can you tell us any of the amazing secrets that were uh, talked about there in that you know, group of 12 amazing judges that were showing up in Seattle? I mean, like, say, what the next judge foils are for the next four pro tours or anything like that? I asked. I asked. I asked. I asked. They wouldn't tell me. Even okay. though we'd already signed non-disclosure agreements, they wouldn't tell us judge foils. Um, oh, no. Actually, well, there is... One thing that I would mention that, that came out of the conference is, so in the judge program, we've been talking just in general about how can we, we reward judges better? How can we recognize judges? If you're interested in getting involved in the program, now is a great time to do it because I can say there's some fantastic stuff on this front coming down in the next however long, three months, six months, a year. There's a bunch of cool stuff coming. And if they want advice on how to do so, they can email us at judgecast at gmail.com. Don't worry, Sean will give the advice, not me. I'm a <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, thank you for that vote of confidence, Jose, and thank you for that tantalizing tidbit, Kevin. I'm sure we'll have to figure out uh, inferences and stuff like that. Maybe they're, you know, just rewarding judges for being judges. Like, I mean, They've already experimented with giving judges judge foils for just doing FNM. So maybe it's something along those lines. Maybe it's something more interesting. Um, I hope it's more interesting. <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you, um, for me, judging is its own reward. But if I could ask for one reward, it would be to finally get my name tag. I'm like the L-Zeros walking around with the judge shirt and the no name tag. Is there an official channel I can just request? It's my dual citizenship Cuban-American uh, identifier with my name on it. Anyone? We'll figure it out. I th I'm pretty sure it exists out there with just the American flag on it. Um, and it may just be in Eric Levine's, you know, underwear drawer somewhere. Um, uh, you would not be the first judge that wanted both flags on their name tag. Um, I also would not be the only judge that has a piece of property in Eric Levine's underwear drawer. <laughs> Eric Levine is the other judge with property in his underwear <laughs> drawer is my guess. <laughs> I'm just, just a wild guess. <laughs> if you would have left that one alone, you know, it would have been, uh, people would have been like, ooh, and then obviously like that's what we meant. Right. Uh, for those of you who don't know Eric Levine, you should know him. Uh, he's a level three judge in California here, uh, most well known probably for his activities with uh, the Channel Fireball store, also known as Superstars. So, a lot has happened, um, and a lot is on the horizon for the judge community. I, I guess that's what really this episode is all about all the intimidating, amazing things that are on the horizon for us. Um, there is, of course, a new set coming out with every new set. There also comes an update to um, all the oracle wordings of certain cards that uh, the rules manager, in this case it's Matt Tabak, um, also a judge, um, 
so he determines what cards should get an update to their template. Um, and then, of course, this is in consultation with all sorts of rules gurus from all over the web um, and other places. So they come together, decide what cards to change, and then make some changes. Um, and then this also takes into account the changes that we need to make the next set's cards work. Um, so we're going to have a link to this in the show notes, of course. Um, but I figured, you know, we've got an L3 here. We've got Jose here. Let's talk <laughs> about the changes. I, I tell you, sometimes when we talk about rules changes, I feel a little bit like the guy on orcish artillery holding on for dear life, <laughs> knowing I'm going to be flung. Well, now, there are really only a few functional changes this time around, only a few things that really work differently now than they did before. Um, That's true. We should, we should start talking about, uh, I think the most important one being um, the plus one, plus one counter on Cocoon is returned. Uh, yes, yes, it's it's a plus one, plus one counter. It's not just giving the creature plus one, plus one. Um well, that's that's true. I mean, that's a change, um, and it is a functional oracle change. It's the first one, but I think the one that's actually generating the most waves is Winter Orb. Oh yeah, yeah, true. Uh, because this used to be a great sort of griefer move that that people with a griefer deck would sort of say, "Okay, I've got Winter Orb, and you're stuck on your you know one untapped land a turn, and when we get to my turn, hey, look uh, at the end, your end step." I'll tap Winter Orb, and oh, look, I get to untap everything else of mine. So, Kevin, have you ever pulled this move? I, I've i played with Winter Orb quite a bit, and I almost kept putting in tap cards just to abuse it, and I guess my window is now closed. So in the first versions of Magic Rules, the static abilities of an artifact got to turn off if the artifact was tapped. Now, you know, artifacts that are tapped still function normally. Um, three cards, Winter Orb, Static Orb, and Howling Mine, were issued errata that maintain the functionality, so they would still turn off when you tap them. Um, and, of course, uh, Static Orb and Howling Mine have this now on the reprint versions of them, uh, but Winter Orb's never really been reprinted, so it's never had the opportunity to put this errata on the card. Basically, um, it's just back to its normal, original wording, which is actually a functional change. Yeah, and, and well, it, exactly. It was a functional change because it was errated, like you said, to have that as long as it's untapped clause. Um, but now, like, that was, Winter Orb was one of those cards, um, along with another one that received a functional change. Um, for those fans of Master of Arms, uh, this also got the same sort of treatment, <laughs> uh, where the card did something only in Oracle text. Like, there was no way that you would know what this card did unless uh, you knew its Oracle wording. If you were a newer player, and by newer I mean like a decade or less, you know, um, and you played with a card like Winter Orb or Master of Arms, um, and somebody tells you, oh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll tap your guy blocking Master of Arms. Dam you know, we'll go to combat damage. My guy lives because he's tapped. What? I don't understand. Oh, yeah, it's an oracle change. Trust me. And, and the same thing, but much griefier would happen with Winter Orb. You'd uh, EOT, tap the Winter Orb, and now all my stuff untaps. Huh? Why? Oh, <laughs> it's in the oracle text. Trust me. Um, I'm not doing this to uh, cheat you. I'm actually just doing this to piss you off. 
Yeah, this is one of those things that frustrates people that compare the the wordings of the of similar cards in the same set. So if you look at say the fourth edition Winter Orb and the fourth edition Howling Mine, neither one has this as long as the card is untapped clause. But the problem is Howling Mine got print reprinted after fifth edition, right? It gets printed in sixth edition, seventh edition. Um, it's the sixth edition wording where Howling Mine gets the new text, and that text has gone forward with it in similar fourth edition wordings, and now they operate differently in Oracle. That's a big one, Winter Orb. Uh, Cocoon is sort of a throwaway. Rebel Informer and Mercenary Informer, um, they refer to Rebel cards and Mercenary cards. Now they were added, they, they gave them the non-token wording. Whenever we're referring to cards, we're not referring to uh, uh, just any permanent Right, and that's actually an interesting thing because you can actually run into situations where players don't understand the difference between a card and a token, um, and the distinction is actually important for some cards. Uh, for instance, I mean, the most recent one that was printed, I think, was um, uh, Blood Chief's Ascension, where it actually cares about cards going to the graveyard, not uh, tokens. And it says whenever a card is put into a graveyard instead of where a permanent or anything, because it, it's saying whenever a card's put into a graveyard from anywhere. And so when we actually go through that, um, it's important to understand the distinction between tokens and cards, even in today's standard. Um, even though these are, you know, nobody plays with these rebels or, or mercenaries anymore, it's much more, you know, it, it, the distinction is still important, and that's why we still do it for these old cards that nobody ever uses. Interesting side note, uh, the original mercenary, mercenaries from Ice Age, also got a functional uh, wording update. I'm sure no one cares, though. Right, right. Well, and that, that's, again, when they're, they're trying to return to the old functionality with new rules word templating, um, where, you know, it used to be that it would just, you could pay the mana and you would prevent all the damage um, for the rest of the turn that mercenaries could do to you. It's funny you bring up the difference between cards and uh, just permanence because there was a comprehensive rules change uh, that actually addressed this. And it redefines what it means to have an empty library. Yes, exactly. It redefines. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting sort of rule. Um, and this goes back to the idea that um, you can actually have a token in your library um, when you would be instructed to draw a card. Um so what it's basically saying is that, you know, you can't draw that token as the card that you would draw. Um, and also that um, if your deck consists of only tokens, then it's actually empty. Even though there's something in it, it there's no cards in it, so it's an empty library. This is a really corner case here because we're talking about, you know, things that happen before we get to checking state-based actions. So it's, we're talking usually replacement effects is where we're going to come in there and really corner cases. We're kind of cornering corners, but it's... I think, Kevin, you had something else to add here. This is this is one of those things that comes up online disproportionately to when it actually ever comes up in Magic. P.S. It was never. Um, <laughs> <laughs> actually, well... Um, actually had one of those, oh, how will the players ever deal with them corner cases that I had discussed online a week before? And my answer was, hey, you know, call me if it ever comes up. Uh, it was cascading into a, a two, shuffling the back a two card library 
uh, when you know when both players have seen both cards, and it's theoretically impossible to actually shuffle it, right? To make so that you don't know the order. Um, True. It was some guy, it was like a twenty-minute argument that that we were that some guy was was having online. Came up at a tournament. Players handled it just fine. <laughs> <laughs> Go players. But yeah, a lot of people like to argue. Well, if there's a token in your library. Most people shortcut through actually putting the token into their library and shuffling, but technically the game does it, and if you draw, you draw a card, you just skip over it. Well, technically, is your library empty if it has no cards, but it has a token in it? Yes. Thankfully, the answer is yes, and I can mention it in public and not encourage the argument. So that, that was my segue for the comprehensive rules changes, Sean, so feel free to talk about those. Uh, sure. Well, there are, there are a whole bunch that are really interesting, but I think we actually touched on the most interesting one. The empty library definition is really kind of neat. Um, there are a couple of the ones that, I mean, they deal with, you know, uh, what's the definition of, or what does it mean to put a counter on, on a thing or place counters on a thing? Uh, sort of clarifying that when an object enters a battlefield with counters on it, they're actually being placed on it, um, for the purposes of, you know, preventing things from being placed on it. Um, like uh, Malira's Keepers, Tatterkite before her, uh, before them, and now in Euphorexia, Malira. So anything that you wanted to uh, highlight in the Oracle changes that you took a look at there, Kevin? Uh, there was actually one that I was glad got fixed, some loophole, some very um, sort of unknown loophole, which is um, <clears throat> if you – okay, show and tell – has a host of complications with it. For example, uh, so Show and Tell is a sorcery. Let me pull up the Oracle text here. Uh, you, each player, may put an artifact creature, enchantment, or land from their hand onto the battlefield, uh, which means if you really want the option, you need some way to indicate that you're not putting anything in. So some players were getting to the point where they wrote on a piece of paper nothing, and they hid the piece of paper instead of a card. Um, what was not well known and was clearly a loophole that they wanted to fix is if you had a card, because both things enter the battlefield at the same time, you have to apply replacement effects before it would enter the battlefield. So if you were putting a ruined halo onto the battlefield, you couldn't name what the other guy was putting on the battlefield because you hadn't seen it yet. Uh, with this update now, you both... The cards can see each other, and I can name your card with Runed Halo or Pything Needle or whatever. But you don't have to yeah. hide that choice when you hide the card. I mean, this doesn't actually affect Clone uh, the way it reads in Matt Tabak's article. You know, the difference between Runed Halo and Clone is that you're actually just choosing a card. You don't have to choose a card that's on the battlefield with Runed Halo. You can choose any card. And so... Really, what's the operative function in, in, in Rune Halo with this change is that I just get to know what that other card is that, that you're picking with your show and tell. Um, so this way, even if I have, um, you know, Warp World flipping over a clone, um, that clone isn't going to have any other creatures on the battlefield that it can copy because it's going to look at the battlefield before it enters the battlefield and say, what can I copy? I can copy anything that's out here. Oh, there's nothing here. Okay, I can't copy anything. I'll enter the battlefield as a zero zero. And then I guess like the same thing would apply to like meddling mage, 
for instance, something something like that. Yes, like that's a, that's a choice that's... Like Mage are, are are similar in the similar boat. You don't have to guess what your opponent is bringing in with show and tell. You um, get to know. Okay. Um, well, let's move on to the next thing we had here. Let's talk about the new Frexia frequently asked questions document, the FAC. Um, there's really a lot of stuff that got released in here, lots of things to talk about. Um, basically, the cards work like you think they work. Um, and I should actually um, mention here, the FAQ document is now in something other than the barely readable rich text file. It's actually on a website, part of the Magic Arcana that was released uh, a little while ago. So you can actually read it with a picture of the card that it's talking about for every one of its entries instead of having to just sort of read this blocky, awkward text. So there are a bunch of uh, basically clarifications for the uh, the various cards that are out here. And really, there's not much here that you wouldn't normally expect to find if you have sort of a, a good understanding of the rules, you'd probably get most of these clarifications. Um, you know, normally it's good to just read through this if there's a new ability um, or new ability word or new keyword that you don't necessarily understand how it would interact with other keywords or other ability words. Um, and in this case, you know, these are mostly all abilities we've seen before, uh, aside from the Frexian mana, but that's a pretty, you know, for lack of a better word, it's pretty intuitive, pretty easy to figure out. Um, you know, it's still, um, you know, for instance, uh, with regard to Trinisphere, you know, if you're paying life uh, for your Phyrexian mana here, um, you know, you are still going to need to pay whatever actual mana gets you up to the three for Trinisphere. Yeah, half the half the rules changes to Oracle, I mean, to uh, the comprehensive rules are just saying, hey, Phyrexian mana is a mana symbol, a something that has Frexian mental misstep, for example, with the one Frexian mana symbol has a converted mana cost of one. And then there's some stuff that people behind the scenes really wanted to know, like what happens if you add a Frexian mana symbol to your mana pool? Do you get life back? <laughs> you the cannot. answer for those of you that is wondering is no, you don't gain life for adding Frexian mana to your mana pool. Well, actually you can't add Frexian mana to your mana pool. Um, it, it, I think that's actually one of the uh, one of the earlier entries in the FAQ here is that when we're talking about Phyrexian mana, it's not a, another type of mana. So when, like, uh, Birds of Paradise says, add one mana of any type to your mana pool, you can't add Phyrexian mana to your mana pool. Um, and if you, you know, if you would get something, uh, for instance, I think the, uh, the example that they used was uh, Elemental Resonance with something that had a a permanent that had Frexian mana in its mana cost, you're not adding Frexian mana to your mana pool, you're adding whatever color the Frexian mana is. So, for instance, the Thundering Tanadon, um, you know, it's four and a green Frexian and a green Frexian. If you um, have Elemental Resonance on that, you get 4GG from Elemental Resonance, not 4PG, PG. Yeah. Actually, I think the set is is fairly straightforward. The only main change is is Frexian mana. You know, and, and actually, I guess there's this there's one one thing on on Torpor Orb. I know nobody's actually going to play with this card because it sucks. But if Torpor Orb and a creature enter the battlefield at the same time, that creature entering the battlefield won't cause triggered abilities to trigger. So if I flip over Torpor Orb with a whole bunch of other creatures, um, none of those 
come enter the battlefield triggers will happen. I just had to get another warp world mentioned into the episode today. Yeah. Going on to our next segment here. Wanted to talk about something that just happened today in the world of judging. We got an email to the judge list that's an update to the spheres. And for those of you who don't know, spheres are portions of the program that are sort of controlled, shaped, directed by a level four judge. Um, in this case, it was Jeff Morrow, who is um, actually probably the, the closest certified judge to my location uh, here in the Oakland East Bay area. Um, so Jeff gave us an update for his sphere, which is uh, level requirements and testing. So basically he wants to talk about how um, we define what a level one judge is and also how we figure out how we test level three judges um, and a couple of the things. But those are kind of the big things that were part of his, his discussion here. And it actually inspired quite a bit more discussion and thought on the part of especially level one judges. So let me just actually read um, Jeff's description here from his announcement and then kind of give his announcement a little bit more context with the follow-up from Andy Hecht and also um, that he gave a follow-up and a couple of people sort of clarified. Um, but we wanted to still talk about this, you know, from this standpoint of your reaction as a level one judge um, and sort of where we think this is going to take the program going forward. Sure. So the idea is that um, we already refer to level two judges as area judges and level three judges as region judges. And it says out there in the same place that the level one judge is, is a local judge. And now we're saying, let's be more specific. Let's call them a store judge that the, um, what we, what we expect from these store judges is that they can run casual and regular REL tournaments in stores up to around 32 players. They're usually working alone, um, but they can also work. They're also, a lot of uh, L1 judges are going to be working at competitive REL events, um, often under the supervision of a more experienced judge. One of the catches here is that the L1 test was about your rules knowledge and also your knowledge of the IPG, this big document that dictates how we work at competitive and professional RELs. But for the vast majority of what L1 judges do, they don't need the IPG. They're in their local store running drafts and F&Ms and, and events like that, and what they need is the judging at regular guide. And so... That's what we're going to put on the L1 test instead of the IPG is how's your rules knowledge, how's your judging at regular guide, which means now that new level ones won't necessarily have been tested on IPG material. So a new level one, they're going to learn this IPG material through working closely with a more experienced judge at this event, getting that hands-on experience, getting to work through situations. So we are trying to we're trying to make it easier for folks that are already doing the job we want them to do to get their foot in the door. That we don't want this guy who's running this guy or girl who's in their store running F and M's for a hundred years to have to go do much work to do what they're already doing. That's a good description. Um, I wanted to also follow up with a couple pieces that came in um, from uh, 
Daniel Kiedrzewski and then also um, Jeff Morrow, you know, he kind of clarified a little bit further later on. Um, this doesn't mean that basically every level one will now be treated sort of as a beginner at their first at their competitive events that they go to. You know, I mean, for instance, like Jose here, you have, <laughs> you know, you've tested for L two, you've got. You've got some experience under your belt. You definitely know what you're doing at a competitive level event. Um, you know, you're comfortable team leading at a competitive level event. There's no reason not to just, you know, let you do what you would normally do at a competitive level event. But there are some people um, that haven't done anything at a competitive level event. In fact, I certified one just a little while ago. Um, you had to <laughs> kind of study the IPG where it was a really – honestly, a relevant document to what he did in his everyday work as a judge. Now, granted, you know, the week after I certified him, he came over to our regional national qualifiers and, you know, was actually, you know, on a team, you know, doing actual competitive <laughs> REL stuff. But it actually happened in the in the order that we actually sort of envision it going forward, where a level one judge tests for his local store, wants to run things at his local store, is sort of the go-to guy there already, um, their local rules guru, and then goes from there to say, okay, um, I'd like to learn more about competitive, so when I get there, you know, put me with somebody that can sort of mentor me and take me under his wing and sort of teach me how to run things at competitive and what we do differently than what I was doing successfully at my F&M. Um, but then, you know, there's, there's a whole range of possible things that you can do as an L1, um, but we've sort of been been talking very carefully about this and wanted to get your reaction <laughs> here, Jose. I mean, as a level one judge, what does this change feel like or look like from your perspective? Well, it, it was sort of stated as a risk here that, or at least a risk that they considered that, you know, people that have already worked really hard to get to their level one certification are going to look at this and say, you know, I just jumped over this huge bar to get to this point. You know, I studied my ass off. I learned the IPG. I understand now what it takes to be a level one. And now that I've passed this bar, everybody behind me is going to have to jump over one that's lower to get to the same sort of prestige that I already have. Yeah, and and that's true. But I'm actually um, not as uh, upset as my uh, particular public idiom would uh, have me be. Uh, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cautious about it. I am. I certainly understand that feeling. Um, I felt like I worked pretty hard. I was a pretty long time coming uh, to be a, a level one judge. Um, the judge community seemed to be like a, you know, a, an elite group of people um, who, you know, their, their benefit is in service. In other words, it's elite because these people want to do more for their community and do more um, for the game that they love than just sitting down, slinging cards, and spending money at their local store. Um, and and I really like that. Um, but with that came, you know, certain. Uh, I guess uh, it was hard. It was hard to get in there. Um, this they specifically state in the document that what they want is to improve acquisition and inclusion of judges. In other words, they purposely are lowering the bar to open the floodgates and have people come in. Um, this presents a particular challenge to the judge community in ways that aren't exactly covered here. A couple things to watch out for, I think, are um, level twos now have to be uh, very vigilant 
um, and considerate of who they test and certify, who they give the opportunity to. If any, if anybody can just come and and become a judge, and as Kevin alluded to, uh, you know, the judge program is is may have more rewards for people than just service and maybe an, uh, a name badge in Eric Levine's underwear drawer. Um, <laughs> I think. I think that that's a serious consideration that level twos have to take is really, no, really, I'm serious. Why do you want to be a judge? Are you right. going to run the tournaments at your store? Is that what you want to be a judge for? Do you want to, um, you know, floor judge at competitive REL? Do you want to advance in the judge program and do other things that uh, the higher level judges do? Do you want to be an area judge, um, regional judge, things like that? These become more serious questions now that the bar is lower. Well, that's true, but I think it's also, you know, if I ask that to a level one judge or to a prospective level one judge, you know, someone who's passed the rules advisor exam, it has really just, you know, approached me and said, you know, I'd like to run a Grand Prix trial at my store. And that's really all I want to do as a judge. I just want to make sure that my store gets a shot at running Grand Prix trials. And I wanted to sort of raise the source profile in my community, um, maybe increase turnout to my events. Um, and I think if I'm a judge, I can help make that happen. Well, I think that's a totally fine motivation like they don't have to have an interest in competitive play they don't have to have an interest in in developing the community beyond what they are already doing at that store um in order to say yeah you are a good candidate now i i also want to stress here just because they're changing the where the policy component of the test falls this doesn't mean that they're necessarily changing anything about the rules content either i mean the different the segments of the test for level one, generally speaking, are about 35 of the 50 questions, give or take, are rules questions, and about 15 of them are policy-related questions. That may change as part of this shift here, but I can, I, I'm hoping that the rules segment of it is, you know, doesn't lose any of its vigor. Um, that we still have about the same quality of questions in there that somebody would have to answer. Um, so that we definitely get that they are the right kind of person and that we're not just getting sort of this careless store owner persona who just says, yeah, you know, I really want to make more money. And to do that, you know, I can run more tournaments and this is this one here. So that's my only motivation. And yeah, there are rules, but whatever, I'll, I'll run it how I want. Um, you know, that sort of person isn't the sort of person that's going to really succeed in the test, even with this sort of a change. So I don't sure. know the bar is being lowered all that much. When I say the bar is lower, I mean they, they purposely made the bar lower. You don't need to know anything about competitive REL to pass your, your judge test. Um, and that, that feeds into the second concern being that, like, you got to make sure that you know that these rules exist. Like, I would, I would make sure to tell L1s that, okay, well, pay attention to the, to the regular REL document, but also, just do yourself a favor and read the the IPG because it really, you know, is a great source document for why and how to handle uh, infractions in Magic. Um, but I do agree with you um, about uh, you don't need like this uh, this huge, uh, you know, overarching motivation. If you just want to uh, run GPTs at your local store, that's fine. Um, that's not a problem, and that's what the new um, reimagining of the L1s is supposed to do. That's fine. But then what if six of your buddies at the same store also want to be L1 judges? Awesome. 
Well, you know, I can actually answer a little bit of this with an example from a local area, and that is that we have a, a store up in the north part of the Bay Area in Santa Rosa um, where basically one of the folks in the group decided, hey, you know, I'm going to become a judge. And then he basically made fun of the rest of his friends in his play group until they all said, I have had enough of your high and mighty, you know, and this was more more good-natured, really. But, you know, I've had enough of this. You know, I'm just as good as you. I'm going to become a judge also. And so, you know, we have, at this point, we have four or five people that I can trace back to that store and say, <laughs> four of those people are level one. One of them is actually no longer at that store. He's moved, like, to Colorado, and he, he lives and works there, but he's certified. So the people that we certified there have sort of spread beyond that. Um, we've brought um, one of those people is a level two judge, Arthur Halavis. Um, you know, so he, he and he's definitely brought some very interesting perspective to the judge community um, in terms of philosophy. I mean, he's one of those people that you would, um, you know, if there's an interesting debate, generally speaking, I want to hear Arthur's opinion on it. Um, I mean, there's definitely a lot of development that's happened. Not just because you know every time that they run an event, they have a certified judge for it for sure. But also, um, the variety of types of judges that can come out of that environment can serve the program in a lot of very different ways. So I think, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing that a store has maybe, you know, I mean, six level one judges. You're not going to have a whole lot of stores that have that. Um, but, you know, when you do, there's still a lot of potential for those stores to really succeed and really bring something new into the program. Well, let's say you've got this store that's got six level one judges on a Friday night. What do you have? You have six judges playing in their local F&M, helping out, keeping it fair. That's sort of the best PR, the best marketing we can get is the guys that everyone, the guys or girls that in the store that everyone looks up to already because they know the rules. They know how things work being judges. Um, a big focus that we get with this, with this change is, when we make it easier for folks that want to get involved to get involved, they come to us and then they get access to the resources we already have to help them get better. So, like Jose said, instead of making someone sit on the outside of our community looking in like some ch character from a, a Charles Dickens novel, you know, rubbing their hand against the, the, the frost-coated window pane get them in the door, get them certified, and then say, all right, you're here. You want to get better at what you're already doing. Let's talk about how things work at Competitive REL. Let's talk about how you get your store a Nationals qualifier or a, uh, a Grand Prix trial. Sure, and and I'm all for that. And that's why I said, you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to this change. I'm, you know, cautiously optimistic about it. But, you know, you're casting you're casting this great light on all these judges and all these people that people look up to anyway. We also had programs end because we had a lot of fraud. I want to make sure that when the floodgates open, because the, the point is to get more people in, I think the best thing that level twos can do as, as certifying these level ones is just, you know, just keep an eye out. Just be mindful. That's all. You know, I, I appreciate your paranoia, Jose. There's another part to that that I guess it's related, so I wanted to bring it up, um, and that is that you mentioned fraud, um, and it's important to understand that that fraud was not, you know, the fraud that led to the downfall of the WPN 
and the broadness of and the openness with which we were able to organize events under it. I really don't – I mean, I know you know this too, but to clarify for our listeners, that's a tournament organizer issue more than it was a judge issue. And that is that tournament organizers – I mean, uh, you know, for a long time, <laughs> the, the so-called test for being a tournament organizer is uh, do you promise not to be a douchebag and do you have a pulse? Like that was basically – that was basically the test to be a tournament organizer for a while. Um and I think you only needed a 50% score to pass. <laughs> and I think that as a whole, um, and I mean, almost, I, I, I would say almost without exception, judges are, are, are the most, um, honest, forthright, and, and, and sort of the best thing for the game. And the more of them that we have, um, you know, the better off this game that we all love and have put our, our blood, sweat, and tears into, uh, the, the better that game will be. Um, and I think that's, I mean, it's one of the reasons we do this podcast. Sure. So, so yeah, now that they're, uh, you know, re- recasting the level ones, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that there will be more people interested. Uh, I'm hopeful that they will give the support to the L2s uh, who want to run larger, more frequent events uh, in their area to have judges that can help them and support them. Uh, from that, you know, cast of new L1s, um, you know, again, the goal is to bring more judges into the, the program from that cast. You hope to have individuals um, who really have something to contribute to the judge program and to their community as a whole. Do you have anything else to add on this, Kevin? Uh, yeah, I think there are there are two concerns, one of which we were sort of seeing if Jose would present uh, that, that people have had that I think we can address here now that all the information that that's coming out seems to have come out. Um so the first concern that a lot of people had is that we have L1s now, that we will have L1s who don't have experience with competitive REL, who aren't, may not be ready to run a Nationals qualifier, work the floor of a Grand Prix and, or a PTQ, and does that make the world end because not all L1s are the same? And, and, it, and it really doesn't, because you don't have the days anymore where someone can apply to an event and no one knows who they are. Because you have a guy that, that you want to work your PTQ or your Nationals qualifier or whatever, and you don't know if he's qualified, you have can go to them and ask them for advice. You can go to the L2 that certified them. You can ask your regional coordinator that different folks have different skills, and there are people whose job, like the regional coordinators, it's our job to know who has what skills and who's qualified for what and get them in the right roles. I think that's maybe a an extreme version of what Jose's <laughs> trepidation is. And, and even then, you know, he's. I think, Jose, you were saying that you you like this change. So you're not saying the world's going to end. Yeah, that's that's true. And um, I, I kind of mentioned it briefly. Uh, one of my comments was um, you have judges now who can never have looked at uh, the, the IPG for instance, or not know exactly what to do at competitive REL um, and still be L1 judges. Um, that's why I put the call out and said, you know, if you're, if you're uh, an aspiring or newly minted uh, level one judge, um, if you don't know about the IPG, um, there's something wrong. If you uh, have not read it, do yourself a favor and take a look at it. It really does go into the hows and whys of of what the penalties are, and you'll know it's just preparation for running a larger event. Um, 
uh, like you mentioned, Sean, uh, not every L1 wants to go into uh, the competitive scene. Um, I I don't have a particular interest in in uh, you know super competitive play, but each and every event that I've run, um, or should I say I've attended, uh, that's a competitive REL that I've worked with a big team has been just it's improved me uh, by a substantial amount as a judge. Um, it's always been great fun. So uh, I do also encourage all ones if you all you want to do is uh you know run your F and M's at the store. That's awesome. That's what I wanted to do. Uh, so I'm I'm totally uh, on the same page with you. Um, but do yourself a favor. Um, talk to your L2 about uh, uh, you know the larger events. Just go out there and judge one of them and see what you think. It can't hurt. Thanks, Jose. That's a that's a great way to sort of wrap up this conversation about the redefinition of what a level one judge is. Um, uh, actually, one last note I wanted to point out is that when we say this is what an L1 is, what we really mean is this is judges have skills. There's a range of what we, of what can, of what an L1 can be. And this is sort of, you know, if you have brand new guy running their FNM at the bottom and you have where Jose is a, a sharp L1 who's ready to mentor folks at competitive REL, who's getting ready to test to folks at L2 it's a range, and, and we acknowledge that that exists. What we're trying to do is is get the L zeros who were doing all these things and let them let them do the things they were already doing with a shirt on. It's right. important to remember when you argue about this later that just because the folks that were running these other tournaments weren't doing it as certified judges, they were still doing it. Absolutely. Yeah, and I guess that's you know we do think of the DCI as a family. And as such, there's this, there's a potential to feel that it's sort of an exclusive group and it really isn't. It's really much more inclusive. Um, and this is, you know, there's a, a natural tendency to sort of be defensive of the work that you put in to get to the level that you're at. And if the standard changes, that would be awkward. But actually, you know, like you said, given that the work's already being done, it's just a matter of recognizing it properly. It's putting out there, you know, all the, unrecognized uh, masses who are just doing doing the good work uh, at their store and uh, basically this L1 redefinition is saying hey this is you why don't you uh, give this a shot this doesn't diminish the work of our senior L1s it means we need them more because they're the ones that are going to show the ropes to the new L1s at the PTQs and the Grand Prix and the the 5Ks after seeing this announcement we had one of our local uh Folks, you know, contact me and say, so I read all this thing about the judge level one definition sort of being shifted in the future. I think it actually is exactly what I'm doing already. Who do I talk to? Like, yes, already happened today. So, <laughs> I mean, the answer is, you know, well, Jose is right there for you. Talk to Jose. And when you're ready to test, you know, if he's not L2 by then, then I'll test you. But, you know, talk to Jose. So that's and if you think. You know, you need to get in touch with somebody in your area. Um, feel free to email us at judgecast at gmail.com, and we will definitely get you in touch with somebody pretty local to you if there's any way that we can. So we've talked about, sort of wrapped up the discussion on how we redefine level one. Uh, do we want to talk a little bit about what this uh, change means also for level three? I think sure. Kevin is the best one to talk about that. 
So for those of you that aren't aware how the L3 process works, we've discussed it before. There's a test that makes blood come out of your ears, and there's an interview with three high-level judges, including a couple of fours or a five. And you sit down for a couple of hours in a room, and, and you go over everything. And, and it could only be done at a pro tour, really, uh, under normal circumstances, because the Pro Tour was the only place where you had a spare L5 and a couple of spare L3s to make it happen, and you could you could staff them with that expectation in mind. Well, we're no longer going the Pro Tour. We still have Pro Tours, but Pro Tours won't be the big in-person spectacle that they used to be. We're not going to have public events at the Pro Tour anymore, uh, and so we won't need. 14,000 judges at the Pro Tour. So we need a system that can be done at a Grand Prix with fewer judges, fewer time, and hey, it needs to be a little easier to do because we need, you know, because we've got twice as many Grand Prix, that's twice as many opportunities to test, twice as many folks that are going to be testing. So part of it was just logistically, what do we need to do to be able to make L3 testing happen at a Grand Prix? Right. And so hopefully um, we'll see this. It looks like they're going to start rolling out pieces of this at Pro Tour Philadelphia, um, where basically they sort of change the requirements of who's going to be on this panel, who's going to be, you know, how, how do we allocate the resources to make sure that this happens uh, so that everybody who's going to test for L3 gets that. Um, and then I think also, you know, there were some descriptions also from Jeff about actually outlining in a document the rubric for what is an L3. Like, how do you actually define the duties, define what they've accomplished? And, you know, you're not going to have any vagueness in these descriptions. It's going to be hard, simple things to evaluate. Um, you know, you've done this or you haven't. You've, you have, you've done these things, you know these things, or you don't. Um, and, it's a really straightforward way of defining this person is ready for level three or they're not. Um, and these are, you know, concrete places that they need to improve. And these are their strengths and, you know, an easy way to identify that. And I guess that's sort of in response to some criticism of the process in the past where, well, I didn't make L3 and I'm not really sure why I didn't, you know? Yeah. Or I wasn't invited to test and I don't know why. Right. Beyond that, we talked about, um, a whole bunch of things today. Um, but actually, I wanted to take this opportunity to mention that along with a couple other judges here in California, after fresh off of our victory over Spain, we've sort of been spoiling for a fight. And so we've decided that we would take on Canada. As of today, I believe we have 81 judges each in California and in Canada. 81 actual judges. Um, and then also, our judge levels are very similar as well. I think they have 106 total levels, and I think we have 101. So it's a very similar. I think they have more level two judges than we do. We have a few more level one judges than they do. Um, so it's a really good match. And so I decided I would, you know, get on Facebook and uh, Charlotte Sable and I talk pretty frequently on on Facebook. Um, and so you know, just started in some friendly banter and decided, yeah, let's make this a challenge. So. Um, hopefully, by the time you hear this, we will have the buy-in of uh, Kyle Rick and um, Max and Allen, who are both from Canada. Um, and they are, of course, 
the, the term is frenemies. Frenemies. There we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> so those three level two judges in Canada are actually sort of a triple threat throwdown with um, myself, David Zimmet, down in Southern California in San Diego, and then also Michael Jimenez, who is up in Northern California in Eureka. So basically the three level two judges that can represent various geographic areas of California and the three geographically dispersed level two judges in Canada together um, were challenging one another to see who can get their country or in our case our state up to 100 total judges uh, with a kicker of five levels up of at least you have you have to have at least five judges go from being level one to level two or level two to level three in essence it's a epic emperor game with judge levels instead of magic cards um yes yes in fact in fact i'm looking for people to deploy from reno to california um if they're interested so so what you're telling me is that jose didn't fail his test it was a calculated ploy um, he's just waiting to advance when the bet starts, and then he's one of your five. Ah, I yes. knew that image on the stack question was a plant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're actually going to go go through with this. As, and, of course, the steak is a steak. Um, basically, we get steak dinner somewhere from, um, you know, with the new Grand Prix schedule for next year, it'll be much more likely that we'll have a Grand Prix, um, you know, probably in some neutral ground area like uh, either you know, Washington State or Oregon. or But regardless, we'll find a time and a place where we can have the Canadians buy us dinner. So, here, here. Um, just consider this a call to anyone in California who's interested in becoming a judge. Um, please get in touch with me, get in touch with your local level two judge, and we will make sure that we find a way, a time to uh, make sure that you are ready to test, make sure that you know the rules, make sure that you get up to speed um, and get an assessment of what you want to do for your community such that we can make you part of our community. So um, I guess there's another war brewing here. Well, again, it's awkward to call it a war because I'm sort of a pacifist, but it's a challenge between Canada and California, formally announced here on JudgeCast. I really Sweet. like this. I like the emphasis on, on advancement because what it means is that we don't certify judges and then forget about them. We certify them and welcome them to our family and keep up with them and encourage them to grow. So that's the challenge that we have. Um, I guess do we have any other, other questions as we go forward with this? Um, we do have a few questions from our listeners, don't we? Oh, we do. Let's actually get into them. Of course, if you're a Canadian prospective judge, um, please don't email us your questions and please don't get in touch with us at all. Um, blah. <laughs> okay. We don't want to help them. Oh, no, we'll, right. we'll, we'll gladly take their questions and tell them exactly uh, what uh, spell batches are and uh, how exactly damage stacks. <laughs> <laughs> and and don't please, please don't forget to tell them about the intricacies of the damage prevention window. <laughs> okay. Well, fantastic. Um, that's very no, true. Um, there is a regional coordinator in Canada who can be a point of contact, and you can, I'm sure Sean would and Jose would be happy to give you his information if you if you have any Canadian specific concerns. 
Well, it's actually kind of interesting to note that Kyle Rick, um, I, I believe that's how you pronounce his last name. Um, Kyle is the regional coordinator for Canada and he's part of this challenge. So really, you know, it's, it's a, you know, because they have a regional coordinator in their court on this, they might have an advantage, um, because they have, you know, the ability to say run a conference with foils and stuff and they'd be like, Hey, come certify. Um, and we can't do that here in California without going through, you know, Aaron Hammer up in Portland and, you know, working through a lot of other things. Um, so we may have bitten off a, a larger opponent here, but I think we can handle them. We are the heavyweight. Uh, we're the champions. We're the reigning champions, the incumbents, if you will. Um, yeah. But they are definitely in a higher weight class. Um, and that's not just because of the good eaten uh, over in Canada. Well, it is important to note that they did get to 75 judges before we did, but we weren't in competition with them to get there. Um, although I, I should note that Canadians do not get to count Edwin Zhang um, unless we get to count Ricky Hayashi. Interesting. Ricky's going to count himself one way or the other. So, Well, he didn't count for the, the uh, challenge with Spain. So I, I think, you know, We'll be okay without him, but if they want to bring in Edwin, then then we get to bring in Ricky. So, doesn't Edwin live in his? Isn't his permanent residence in Canada? Um, I think it's. I think right now he's actually in China, sort of for long term, um, or vice versa. I know he spends about half his time in China, about half his time in Canada, but uh, because I mean he's the regional coordinator for China, so I, I find it awkward that we would. Count him in Canada for the purposes <laughs> of this. Well, he's actually the regional coordinator for a giant country and doing all the development over there. Um, of course, there was this joke that he was going to Italy also, but that's not actually the case. Um, <laughs> so, okay, let's get back to our listeners' oh, yeah. questions here. Yes. Um, this comes from someone that I've actually worked with. He's a, he's a level one judge now. When I worked with him at the um, Star City Open in San Jose, um, he was not certified yet, but he had come all the way from Virginia for a business meeting and had decided, well, I'll stay for the weekend, I'll judge the Open, and then maybe when I get back to Virginia, I'll test. Well, since then, he has. So he's successfully tested for Level 1. His name is William Van Dyke, and I was very happy to work with him then, and I'm happy to hear from him now. Um, he has a question for us, though. Um, he says, I had an uncomfortable situation come up during the top eight of my local nationals qualifier. I was hoping you guys could let me know the proper resolution. In game two of the match, this is again the finals in the nat queue, player A begins his turn with a mountain, a dark slick shores, and ever-flowing chalice with one counter. He untaps, draws, plays a scalding turn, and then fetches up a second mountain, placing it on top of the first mountain, Proceeds to play Koth of the Hammer and says, untap a mountain. Then untaps a mountain. Player N says, sure. Player A then says, swing with the mountain. And at this point, player N calls for a judge. When I get there, player N states, my opponent untapped the mountain that came into play this turn. I was watching very specifically for this since it comes up a lot. Player A says, I believe I untapped the mountain on the bottom. It was clearly my intention to do so. Both players seem genuinely um, sure that they knew which mountain it was, so I had no reason to suspect one was fishing for a beneficial ruling um, or, you know, that there was anything fishy going on. So, he's asked the players to recreate the events 
and they're both very sure about what they've got, what their side of the story is, and they both disagree. Um, so, I ruled in player N's favor since he was much more confident which mountain it was when initially questioned. Was there a player communication violation here? If the player had said, untap a mountain and swing, would that have been a player communication violation since his actions would not match his words? Basically, he's saying, um, I'm swinging with this thing that I can't swing with, so is that some sort of a violation also? So, let's actually talk about the situation. Kevin, how would you rule? Uh, okay, so the first part of his question was, was there a player communication violation here? Yes, that's his question. Um, and the answer to that, that we can go ahead and answer pretty pretty easily that there isn't. A player communication violation is a really, really narrow infraction. It's designed just in the case where a player gives some information that it acts, they, they give some information they think is correct that is later determined is incorrect. Right. So how many cards do you have in your hand? Three. And then they count the cards in the hand later, and it turns out there's four. We've, we've had some issues. Because of that, player communication violation. Well, and can we stop and talk about this for a second here? Because player communication violation is one of those things that, you know, when I talk to level one judges about this or candidates about it, their perception of what a player communication violation is is very different from what the FPG actually says. You know, when we hear the words player communication violation, we sort of assume that this means that, well, anything that happens regarding the communication between two players um, and where that communication breaks down, we can sort of default to a player communication violation. And that's just not the case. You know, that's player communication violation is a very specific thing. Um, and I think... Maybe we should consider rewording it, re- renaming it to something uh, that sounds more specific also. Something like, you done told a lie, boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's what they call it in Texas for the TIPG. <laughs> um. So have either of you actually had a situation come up where you, a player committed the player communication violation infraction? I can't think of one at all. I don't think I've ever issued that penalty. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I have either, actually. But my experience, of course, being less yeah. than Sean's. Interestingly, I've also never uh, <laughs> issued this infraction. It's never come up for me before. What about the actual situation with, you know, this two mountains, one's come into play, one hasn't, you know, one player says, well, I picked the one that could attack. The other one says, no, you didn't. You picked the one that you just played. Um, what, I mean, is this just a simple player A said, player B said? Or how would you parse this apart here, Kevin? See, um, if we're playing on Magic Online, this is really easy, right? Magic Online gives you the little indicator of something that's summoning sick, and it keeps track of which land is which. Uh, and maybe there we have to care. But in this situation, I this is one of those cases that sets off alarm bells for me, where player the, the non-active player, we're calling him player in, I guess, sure. knows exactly what the active player wants to do, knows that it's legal, and is trying to find some little loophole in what that guy said or, or did 
to 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 screw them out of what they're trying to do. Right. This feels like rules lawyering. Yeah. This is this is a pretty ridiculous case in my opinion. Um and especially hey, we've got two mountains that have maybe got identical pictures on them. We don't really require players to keep track of which, you know, in, in unless we know it's going to matter. Uh, and it almost never does. We don't require, you know, so if the player plays a Mishra's Factory this turn, and that's their only creature that can become a creature, their only land that can become a creature, sure, you gotta remember that. But, if we've got two Mishra's Factories, one who's summoning sick and one who isn't, totally fine to just say, animate the one that can attack and attack with. Now, does it matter whether or not the active player knows that the mountain that he just brought in can't be attacked with? Uh, yeah, I think it matters. I think this is one of those cases where uh, knowledge of the rules gets you a benefit. Okay, so uh, it's not necessarily rules lawyering if there's an actual question in the active player's mind that, you know, oh, I did, I couldn't attack with this one because I, I thought if it's a creature, I mean, it was on the battlefield, so I, I just attacked with it. I, I, I mean, if he's at all unclear like that with it, if... I can actually see ruling in player ends favor if that's the yeah. case. Um, but I, th- I think you're right, Kevin, when you mentioned that it doesn't really matter which one he chooses, just that he knows the consequences of the fact that which one he chooses matters. But the one that they indicated, that's more like a player A said, player B said. We just can't parse that out very easily. Yeah, if there's if there's a rules question, if the if the active player doesn't know the rule, maybe he gets into some trouble. But if there's a question of which land did he play this turn... That is actually which land did he actually play this turn? Which land will actually be a summoning sick creature? Come on, you know what he's trying to do. He's attacking with a mountain. Deal with it. Yeah, exactly. Like even even in cases where like you animate all the lands, you know that one of them cannot attack the one that entered the battlefield that turn. So you just leave that one back. It doesn't matter if you're actually leaving back the one that uh, can't attack or can attack. You know, you're leaving one back, so you you know you know what's going on. Anything else on this situation before we go on? Um, I do have a question. Sometimes when it comes to the he said she said, and uh, uh, you know, it, it comes by pretty soon. Like the judge call happens pretty immediately. Um, one thing that I like to do is just kind of back up uh, uh, the game state till just before the action took place and basically have them repeat the action. That's a way to sort of, you know, kind of rule in uh, in one person's favor, though, because they basically get to now, in front of a judge, say, I attack with the one that's not summoning sick. And then everybody with a judge witness knows what happened. Well, I think you need to be very careful when you do that, though, uh, for a couple reasons. First off, generally when we back up a game state, that's the sort of thing that, from one place to another within a tournament, we need to be very clear about being consistent with it. And I think when we talk about making the ruling, it's a very different thing to say, well, show me what happened. Like, demonstrate with the cards here, show me what happened, uh, versus actually saying, okay, we're actually going to back up the game state, rewind these actions, then this action, then this action. You know, we actually need to, I think when we first get there, it's, you know, snapping right to backing up is, is probably rushing our decision, and I think it's probably best to just say, show me what happened, as opposed to actually backing up. So that's the first thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that I think 
sometimes, I mean, I, I can definitely see this situation coming up where a spectator calls a judge over instead of his, you know, one of the opponents. And, you know, by saying back up a little bit and go through each action as the first thing you do when you get to the table or, or as early on in this process, um, you run the risk of sort of, if the player doesn't already know that there's some sort of a problem in what they did, you give them a chance to do it again and figure it out as they're doing it again, as opposed to sort of what they actually did the first time when they did it through. So I think you might actually run into a situation where you're sort of inadvertently coaching this player. Now, mind you, when I say backup, I mean, uh, I wouldn't even suggest it if it wasn't an immediate thing. This question said the dude untapped a land and turned it sideways to attack, and then uh, the other guy called the judge. Right. So there was really like no other actions yeah. taken. So I mean, when I say backup, that's what I mean. Like, okay. if, as judges, if there's confusion between players on what a shortcut means, we have the ability to back up to the point of the the confusion and and let them proceed from that explicitly instead of using a shortcut. But in this case, I don't I don't even think we need to do that. I think it's fine to just say. Stop being such a fun spoiler. <laughs> that's that, well, okay, great. That's that's a great uh, piece of advice for that. Um, I, I mean, I don't think I'd word it that way, but you know what I'm trying to say. Like, come on, you're, I'm not going to let you get away with this sort of tactic. Play magic. Don't play the rules. Okay, exactly. Like, um, in other words, the the sort of backup situation that I was talking about helps a lot when resolving shortcut disputes that's a yeah that would be a place to, to do it okay great that's that's good advice like if i say go and you start to do stuff and we're not clear what phase you're doing your stuff in hey let's go back to when you said go in your first main phase and now before you do anything say explicitly where you're acting that's sort great. Of thing. right right and i think that's important to note also because um you know I think there, there's a sort of a, a feeling that some judges have that, well, I'm at a competitive level event, and this changes the world completely because there's this new document that didn't apply at FNM. It's the IPG. And because I'm in this new environment, I need to take things much more seriously. And, well, yeah, you need to take them more seriously, but it's not severe. It's still a game. Um, and it still has, you know... It, people still have the feeling of I'm playing a game here. And I think what you said really resonates with me to play the game, not the rules. That's that really resonates as a, as a good sort of philosophy and understanding for dealing with the situation as opposed to just saying, well, you know, I'm going to quote the IPG and quote, quote, quote rules and think more about yeah. exactly what goes on here. It, when it comes down to it, it's still a game. Yeah, as judges, we want the decisions the player makes to the player who makes the best decisions, and those decisions are metagame and mulliganing and play decisions to determine who wins. What we don't want is those sorts of tricking your, you know, verbal misclicks and tricking your opponent into, um, you know, tricking your opponent into making a misplay is great. Trying to trick your opponent into giving up priority when they didn't mean to. Not great. Exactly. 
he asked, uh, you know, specifically, like, did I did I handle this weirdly? I think he said he ruled in which player's favor. He says he ruled in player N's favor, um, and I can basically he said because that player seemed more sure about what had happened um, than player A. In this case, it sounds like the three of us are sort of getting to this decision that, well, player N may have been rules-lawyering the situation, and we may not have ruled in that situation with this benefit of hindsight. Um, of course, that's not to say that Will's wrong in his answer here because, you know, we weren't there and we can't assess that situation directly. Yeah. But based on his description, I think there's there's definitely some wiggle room to go in either direction with this. There is there's a lot of good stuff in his answer. Um, like I have, I don't have a trouble at all believing that player N was specifically looking for this and kept a better eye on which land it was. And the judge, yeah, did. he did the investigation. He talked to both players. He knew the judge knew he had to make a decision. He says. Your story, the way you tell it, is more believable. The evidence, you know, the evidence seems more in your favor. You seem more sure of yourself. I've got to make a call. I'm making this one. Like that, those are the the skills that we need to make investigations. He had, you know, he had to make his call. He made the call, the best call with what he had, and I think that's totally fine. Right. Exactly. And and you know, the benefit of talking about these questions on this forum and having people write into us is you kind of get the, the back and forth and you get the both ways, you know, hopefully he's listening to the podcast. He hears this question on the air. And then next time he gets called in a similar situation, he's going to be like, well, let me think is, is there some rules lawyering going on here? I remember I had a similar experience and you know, those talking heads on judge cast uh, talked <laughs> it through. So uh, I gotta, I, I gotta watch for that. So, I mean, there's, we, when we answer questions, we're not we're not going to call say you called it wrong, you called it right, you know you called it, it's done. You're an umpire, you called it, it's done. Um, well, yeah. And it's also important to note that you know we've spent half an hour on this one question, and it's <laughs> a level one, a level two, and a level three judge all giving different perspectives on it. Um, I mean, if this had happened in a tournament, there's no way that this is the right way to answer the question because <laughs> we're all taking too long. Right. Um, yeah. So Are you saying I can't Skype you and talk for twenty minutes before making a ruling? Um, <laughs> Skype, Skype the head judge in. See, see what happens. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. And if you find that you're taking twenty minutes to make a ruling, chances are you're doing it wrong. That's all that we have from our listeners at the moment. Just a couple questions we wanted to cover there. Um, other questions that come in, of course, it's only been a week since our last episode, so um, there's some time there for more questions to come in. Um, before we sign off here, Kevin, do you have anything else you'd like to add to the conversation? I do. There was something that came up earlier that I meant I meant to mention when we were talking about uh, Winter Orb, and I, I forgot. Um, so... Winter Orb in Alpha and Beta was an artifact that turned off when it was tapped. Do you remember what type of artifact that was? It was a poly artifact. Mono artifacts, essentially, um, artifacts back then uh, did not have tap symbols. So the way the game differentiated them was to call them mono versus poly. In other words, um, Icy Manipulator was a mono artifact because it required tapping as part of its effect. Um, whereas uh, artifacts like Howling Mine and Winter Orb were poly artifacts. Um, 
There's a, the reason I ask is there's a favorite trivia question, uh, of a judge that, uh, I worked with quite a lot in, in Virginia named Abe Corson. And his trivia question is, what is the one artifact in, uh, Alpha that is not, that doesn't have a type? It is just an artifact. Oh, wait, is it Jade's statue? How do you know? How did you know? It's Jade's statue, isn't it? It is Jade's statue. Oh my god. I think the reason I remember this is because this is one of those weird ones where it had the power and toughness printed down in the bottom right hand corner of the card. And they weren't really sure do we call it a creature, do we not? Because it's it can be turned into a creature. And and I think isn't isn't that how it works, right? Yes, only during the combat step. Right. So so sometimes it's a creature, sometimes it's not, and it makes no sense to add mono or poly to that because you don't have mono creatures or poly creatures. You just have artifact creatures. Huh. Yeah. I, I'm now looking in Gatherer at, at the Alpha Jade statue, and indeed it does have power and toughness printed on it. You and have topped my to- trivia question. <laughs> Uh, but th- I mostly wanted to make a plug for the upcoming Grand Prix Kansas City. Uh, Grand Prix Kansas City is June 18 to 19. But for anyone that is interested in judging, want to get involved, there is going to be a judge conference June 17th. If you want to get involved in that, you think you'll be in the area for the Grand Prix, you want to go by, please shoot me an email or send it to Sean and they can pass it on to me. Grand, judge conferences are a great place because it's all the judges getting around and talking about judging and playing EDH and eating pizza and drinking beer without a pesky event getting in the way. And even if you've really never judged an event before, absolutely you are welcome to come by, see what it's all about. Well, that that sounds fun, yeah. Um, yeah, people can get in touch with you at thebangswang at gmail.com, right? <laughs> Uh, apparently now they can. I, while recording this episode, I got a handy email from Jose telling me that he had registered this email address in my name and, and turned it over to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, for all of us here at JudgeCast, including our guest, Kevin, this is Sean Caronese signing off saying, keep it fair. Jose Boveda, I keep it fun. I'm Kevin Binswanger, and I keep it swanging. I'm not wearing any pants.